Okay, um, this is going to be very uh, exploratory in the spirit of the things that have been said about these morning talks. And I'm really looking for guidance and suggestions. And I will also say that this is a project that we worked on rather intensively uh, a few years ago and then uh, have not made a lot of progress on lately. So uh, I'll explain where we get stuck. And it's going to be intentionally provocative. Uh, involves a lot of people, uh, some of whom are listed here. Uh, Clayton is here. Now, uh, uh, Roland Merckx is going to, my former postdoc, is going to be coming uh, next week. And so, when I look at biology in general, uh, and I'll try to minimize the number of boilerplate slides I show, but I have to give a couple. Um, I see really three classes of problems that I work on. Uh, the first one of which is development. How do you go from an egg uh, to an organism? And to me, the key thing that makes development interesting to somebody coming from a physical or mathematical background is the question of how do you organize a complex organism like a mouse without a roadmap or a plan. We'll come back to that. The second problem, which has been alluded to in some of the talks, uh, but which I think is hard to appreciate if you don't think uh, carefully, is homeostasis. How does an organism maintain itself uh, for an extended period of time in the absence of any absolute standards of reference? Uh, and as I said, I think in other contexts, if you try to do something like temperature regulation and all you try to do is minimize the derivative of the temperature, you have drift. There's no way to correct for drift. And that's the case in uh, most of organismal biology. Uh, organisms don't seem to be doing much uh, in their adult lives in terms of structural transformation. But in fact, almost every cell and molecule in your body turns over, uh, either rapidly or slowly. And so maintaining a structure once you build it is quite difficult. And of course, the third leg of this is what I would call a developmental disease. And the fundamental question then is, how does a failure of homeostasis uh, reuse developmental mechanisms in ways that are unhelpful? And we uh, are working at the moment on uh, liver diseases, particularly liver toxicity. Uh, I'll talk about cancer today, diabetic retinopathy, which I'll talk about in the math department uh, in a week or two, uh, a disease called polycystic kidney disease. Uh, I think uh, you have heard talks on osteoporosis. It's not a very interesting problem, not one we work on. If you look at modern cancer research, and uh, this is uh, a bit provocative perhaps, uh, there is a tendency to focus on genomics. And so if you are uh, asking a question about what's the effect on an organism if you upregulate or downregulate a gene in a cell, it's a little bit like somebody going to one of these carnival uh, environments where you have a lot of strings and some prizes and you want to know what's going to happen when you pull on a particular string and you pick one, pull on it, and you reach in and you come out empty-handed. And uh, I 
can't go give any talk without quoting Marcello, and I particularly like the way he looks in this picture. Uh, a frustrated theorist. An old off. Well, he does experiments now. Uh, Marcello and I were office mates at Chicago, although we've never written a paper together. And uh, nature has a criminal mind. And so everything that I say today is going to be a generic statement, uh, modulo the observation that for any generic statement in biology, there is some counterexample. And I'm not going to always qualify uh, my statements by saying, except in the case A, B, C, D, E, F. That white collar crime or blue collar crime? Well, I think it's pink collar crime, actually. <laughs> But if you Google him, that's the first photo you come up with. So, <laughs> so the motivation for studying cancer from a uh, biophysical or mathematical perspective are many. Uh, the first one, and we'll come back to the second one in a minute, is that cancers are a spectrum of diseases. Uh, it's not a disease. Uh, but they have a certain overlap uh, of characteristics. <laughs> And this is typically biological. You have uh, different cancers that share different phenotypic aspects, uh, but there isn't a single uh, set of characteristics that you can ascribe to every cancer. Uh, we know that, can toxic, uh, that therapies today uh, are relatively ineffective with some very specific counterexamples, uh, particularly leukemias we seem to be able to treat quite effectively in many cases. Um, but in particular, uh, there is a series of observations that suggest that many of the therapies we use uh, lead to uh, more aggressive cancers that actually could reduce survival. And the fact that radiation and chemotherapy are often very highly toxic to non-cancer cells uh, is something, of course, that's notorious. And also that therapies are ultimately ineffective in most cases. If you can't cut out all of the cancer cells, you're going to die of the cancer. Uh, and my uh, hypothesis is that fundamentally the reason for that is that we don't understand the biology of cancer. Um, there has been an enormous amount of hype uh, about molecular and genetic approaches to novel cancer therapies. In general, those have had fairly limited success. And again, you can point to some very specific, highly successful treatment, uh, but overall, they've been a flop. Certainly a flop compared to the amount of effort that's been invested into them. And so that suggests that maybe we need new approaches. And the key thing, of course, in any of these developmental phenomena is the fact that you're dealing with systems of large numbers of interacting agents with feedback. Now, if we're going to build models, and I'm going to be talking only about models today, we know we can't model everything in detail. And so we have to start somewhere. And the key thing, from my point of view, is the cell. Because the cell, if you're not uh, an uh, early stage Drosophila embryo, or a myofiber, or a slime mold, the true slime mold, is the fundamental agent of biological activity in our bodies. And a cell, and I will freely anthropomorphize things, uh, has information about its internal state and its environment, its local environment. 
and it has the ability to remodel its environment and change its behavior. And that's it. A cell doesn't have a roadmap. It doesn't know that it's in an organism. It doesn't know what the organism's goals are or survival benefits are. It doesn't know where it is or what it's doing. It just has information about itself and its local environment. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't, when I say local environment, doesn't mean that that local information can't be a result of long-range transmission of information. It's just that the cell only knows what the gradient or local concentration of a particular molecule is. It doesn't know in any way where that information is generated. And so this lack of a roadmap uh, is, I think, the key thing that distinguishes biology from engineering. And I think it's the mistake, when people make fundamental mistakes in development, I think it tends to be because they take an engineering perspective. They think there is a roadmap. Uh, James, yes. Sorry. But could you please specify a little bit? Because let's say, maybe I misunderstood this your statement before, but then this would be that, for instance, you take a cell from the skin, yes. you put it in the blood, and it will work. No, because its environment changes. The moment you change the environment, the cell changes. So the, so the, cell, the, the response of the cell will change, the behavior of the cell will change, it will become, become a blood cell. No, not necessarily. It will do whatever it is able to do, given that new environment. Probably it'll die. It'll die. Uh, but, uh, but then I don't understand your comment. Which comment? That uh, because it remodeled their environment. Yes. And it will change their own behavior. Yes. So there's some limited capacity to change this behavior. Cells. Otherwise, otherwise if, the, if, if the capacity to change behavior were limitless, then what I said just before would actually work. Right. I'm not saying that there aren't very great restrictions on the range of behaviors a cell in any particular situation could have. I'm simply saying that you cannot assume what you've just said. Which, I, mean, <clears throat> I got in big trouble years ago for saying that Lee Hood was an idiot. In fact, I wasn't invited to NIH for years after I said this at a meeting. Because what he had said is, if you take a single cell and you put it in a micro well and you study what that cell does, you understand how that cell behaves in vivo in a complex environment, which is clearly not true. Uh, if you take a cell out of its native context and put it somewhere else, the behavior of that cell will change. It will change in complex ways. Now, the cell will also begin to modify whatever environment it finds itself in. What I'm saying is the following. A cell does not keep its state when you change its environment. However, the cell is changing the environment around itself, causing its neighbors to change their environment behaviors as well. And therefore, you have to always consider the feedback between the cell and its environment. The direction is not simply cell to environment or environment to cell. And it's that complex feedback between the cell behavior and the environment that the cells themselves are creating, along with whatever boundary conditions the organism is creating, that make this such a complex problem. But, but how about like this uh, classic experiment by Weinberg? They found this uncle gene and the cancer surface gene, because they do it just not in vitro, uh, they do in vitro, right? I'll come to that. 
So let me just, just give you my two more boilerplate, and then we'll come to the, the meat of the talk. Um, we do what's called multi-cell modeling, where cells are the primary agents in the model. This is what people tend to call agent-based modeling. Uh, if you've done flock modeling, uh, you're familiar with it. And that separates these biological problems into at least three levels, potentially more. And I have other slides which I'm not showing today which discuss all the details. Essentially, how you go from molecular event to molecular network behavior, and that's neglecting all the structural information inside the cell, which is critical. Then, how that network behavior gives rise to a set of controlled cell behaviors, which is what we focus on. And then, the output of a model of this kind, which is, given that set of controlled cell behaviors, how do you organize to form a tissue? And what does it do? And we build this kind of multi-cell model all the time. And over the years, we've developed this modeling framework uh, that is designed to make building those models as simple as possible, which is not very simple, but you can learn it in a week. And we teach it every year. Next one will be in Brazil in the summer. The kinds of behaviors we're talking about uh, exist at multiple levels. For intracellular dynamics, we typically just use reaction kinetics. Uh, if we're concerned with cellular structure, we could divide a cell up into what we would call subcells, or compartments, uh, which could have different physical and mechanical properties, different chemical properties. Uh, but typically, we don't need that. Uh, there are potentially the whole organism, uh, PBPK, ODE models, for things like blood flow. We don't have explicit models of blood flow in these simulations. We use PDEs to model reaction, diffusion, decay of extracellular components. Uh, there's a finite element module that allows you to remodel solids and viscoelastic materials. Uh, I would say the biggest thing that we lack uh, at the moment is a decent understanding of extracellular matrix. It's a very hard problem. People, of course, like Dave Weitz are working on that. Uh, people like, uh, like uh, uh, No, it doesn't matter. There are a lot of people working on it. But in fact, having uh, constitutive relations for extracellular matrix is a big problem. And it's a big, you'll see why it's a problem in a minute. Uh, at the moment, we have limited ability to do fluid flow. But again, I want to come back to cell behaviors. And fundamentally, we think of cells as objects, agents, that occupy space and do certain things. They could stick to each other. They have certain membrane area. They can divide. They can die in various ways. They can respond to mechanical or chemical signals in the environment. Uh, they can move in particular ways. Uh, and so all of the models are based fundamentally on the idea of cells that do things and their interactions with the environment. What is haptotaxis? Haptotaxis is response to mechanical properties in the environment. So for example, if you put uh, there are famous experiments of Bicadebo and others where you put a cell on a, a uh, gel, where you have two densities of gel, and cells typically prefer to be on stiffer substrates. So if they crawl around randomly, when they get to the boundary between the soft and the hard substrate, they'll move back onto the hard substrate. Um, they also uh, 
will differentiate in particular ways uh, based on that. And so the more sophisticated models that we build uh, are things like this, uh, which I'm not going to talk about in much detail. This is a simulation of, we can probably find a chair if you want. Uh, there are more chairs here if you want. Um, there are, these are simulations of uh, vascularization of a toy tumor where we start with a single cell uh, that's proliferating. Uh, the cell will proliferate, form an avascular tumor spheroid. Uh, when the cell gets to a certain size, the cells in the center will become hypoxic, uh, send out diffusible growth factors that will then cause proliferation of the vasculature. Uh, in this simulation, there's vascular proliferation. Here, there isn't. And you can do, uh, ask questions like, what's the growth rate of the tuber as a function of time? Uh, and you find out that there are, in fact, a whole series of transitions that this system goes through uh, where you get different regimes of growth. And those transitions are different in the case of neovascularization, the black curve from the red curve. Uh, notice that even in the absence of neovascularization, the tumor keeps growing. Uh, it just grows more slowly. Uh, but most interestingly, the phases that it goes through are different. And so this was a model which is typical of the models that we build where we start from a very complex biological problem. We pick a fairly large number of uh, apparently well-validated biological quasi-facts and incorporate them into a simulation. Now, because these simulations are quite complex, uh, we don't have much ability to understand them in the sense of a physicist or an anal a mathematician. You can't do analytics at this level of model complexity. Did, did, you, did you include just the diffusible growth factor, or did you include the modeling of the, of the uh, cells around in the matrix as a result of a leakiness of blood vessels from within the tumor? This is a very, very simplified model. It's already uh, quite elaborate. Uh, there isn't an explicit model of extracellular matrix in this. Uh, and there also is no explicit blood flow in this model. The oxygen and glucose uh, tensions are kept constant at the surface of the blood vessels. Okay. Uh, so we don't have an explicit flow model. Uh, one could very easily add that here, uh, but uh, this particular simulation, the student went off and did something else. So those are the blood vessels, those red? The red are blood vessels, but they're, they're, it's, it's, we're cheating. We're not putting blood through them in an explicit way. We're simply saying that at the surface of the blood vessel, there is a supply of oxygen and glucose, which then diffuses in the environment. And you see that propensity to run along the axes of your body? Uh, because the initial state was a square grid. Um, that symmetry can be broken if you care about it, but it's not, it's not significant. And then on, on the, the interesting next slide, the black curve was with angiogenesis, mm -hmm. that means that with an adequate supply of blood, is that what the black curve No, means? it just means that the, the, the tumor is able to induce the formation of new blood vessels. Okay. And, and so you okay. see, yes, go ahead. And that, and so is that black curve, um, can, you might guess that it would go like the cube of the time or something if there were a constant uh, velocity of a tumor front. Uh, it, it's, it's probably much more complicated than that, but 
if you have an understanding of the shape of the black hole? Well, there are a series, as I say, a series of phases. Right. Um, to, to get an exponent out of something like this, you'd have to run a large number of replicas. Uh, this simulation was done a long time ago and could still run it, do those replicas. We didn't do it. But we, 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 it led us to ask slightly different yeah. questions for that. But by linear spherical phase, do you mean a roughly spherical uh, tumor whose front is expanding linearly in time? Yes. Okay. Uh, and th that would give a, a, a few, uh, almost it's limited. No, no, no. Here it really is linear. This is a lin lin, -lin plot. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, he needs a small number of cells. Um, so. You're limited. You're basically you have only you have all, right. proliferation only at the surface, right? So you might expect it to go quadratically, because you have uh, co if constant growth rate at the surface. If the uh, radius is increasing linearly, right. then the total volume will go up like q. But the number of cells increases linearly. So it's like the surface is increasing linearly because the growth is only happening on the surface. Right. I agree completely with that statement. But then the total, you have to add up all the cells that are added in this onion-like way. But your your this is a complicated problem. This this regime, you're unlimited growth. Right. Here, your diffusion limited, and there's no growth. Right. Okay. Once you, your cells find, yeah. you notice that even if there no, there's no new vasculature, you still yeah. get growth. Yeah. What's happening here is that oh. the cells are growing along the vasculature. Okay. Good. Okay. So then you're basically forming a cylindrical uh, a hollow tube. tube around the blood vessels. So then that, uh, goes linearly. that goes more or less linearly right. in time. Okay. Good. Whether that seems to be a similar effect here, what happens here at, at between five and okay. six, yes. there's some phase transition where things happen much faster. And what's happening there essentially is that the tumor in this case, yep. in this particular simulation, there's another set of simulations which aren't on this graph, which is you can ask the question, what happens if the blood vessels stay superficial to the tumor yes. versus what happens if they penetrate the tumor. Okay, this is a case where the blood vessels stay superficial and so only the surface of the tumor has a supply of nutrient and oxygen. And there's no treadmilling going on here. Oh, there's always treadmilling. That's what happens here. There's tremendous reproduction of cells, yes. but the net size, this is what I would call homostatic. Well, that's the flag region. Yes. That's, that's what right. you mean by treadmilling. Okay, thank but you. But there's always treadmilling. There always are cells that are nutrient deprived and dying. And that's actually going to be very significant. And so I would love to come back to these models sometime and do them more seriously. Uh, but we, we went, this inspired us now to step back and say, based on that observation, what would we say if you were thinking about cancer for the first time? And I think that it's sometimes helpful to be moderately ignorant, not so ignorant that you say things that are insane, but ignorant enough that you don't have the same preconceptions that necessarily are those of the textbooks. And I don't think that the story would be one that we would tell in the way you see it in a typical textbook. Uh, the typical textbook will tell you that uh, you start out with a cell, the cell has a mutation which causes it to proliferate uncontrollably. And then uh, there are certain other specific genetic changes that happen to the cell 
that lead it through what's called cancer pro uh, progression. That is, the accumulation of particular behaviors uh, in an ordered fashion that leads to metastasis. And so, where would we start with this? Well, coming back to development, to me, the growth of a cancer is essentially a developmental process. Uh, it's a self-organized process, coming back to this idea of cells building in the environment that they respond to. Now, of course, the organism in which the cancer is occurring, the tumor is occurring, I'm only talking about solid tumors here, uh, will also do things in response to that tumor. And so the boundary conditions can change. But fundamentally, because you need to have treadmilling, which is another word for homeostasis, developmental mechanisms are continually active in your body. You don't see them in the sense that they're keeping the morphology and the behaviors the same. But if they stopped, you'd notice very quickly. Um, and one of the key points, which I'm coming back to, is the fact that there are no absolute references. And again, when I say words like no or all, what I mean is mostly or sometimes. Uh, uh, so that drift uh, during tissue turnover is inevitable. And that I really do believe. Um, and tumor initiation is a failure of homeostasis. And so I want to develop an understanding of cancer based on that failure of homeostasis. Why do you develop tumors? And you have to understand changes in cell behaviors, that is, somatic evolution. And what is somatic evolution? Somatic evolution is any heritable change in cell behaviors. And people will say, well, what about my favorite oncogene X? And isn't that mutated in cancer Y? Well, maybe. What matters is that in a tumor, you have rapid replication of cells. You have behavioral variation. And in a meeting we had in, in uh, Knoxville, Nimbios, a, a year and a half, two years ago on cancer, uh, somebody said, well, we need to list all the possible ways you can have heritable variation of uh, phenotype okay. cells. And what we stopped when we listed 34. Now, uh, specific mutations, point mutations, uh, chromosome doubling, deletions, etc., are some of those, but there are 25 different epigenetic heritable mutate variations as well. And there can be structural ones that have nothing to do with what's going on inside a cell. All that you need is replication, variation, heritability of variation, and what we mean by variation is behavioral variation, and selection. And if you look at a typical avascular tumor spheroid and ask what's the typical survival of the offspring of a given cell, what you find is that 99% plus of all cells offspring die. In fact, you could put probably a 0.9 beyond that, and you still would be underestimating it. So only a tiny fraction of the cells in a cancer and a tumor survive. Almost all of them die. And that means because you have extremely strong selection, you can have strong evolution. And the death is by uh, apoptosis, necrosis? Or it depends on the cancer. 
And that's extremely significant because the way cells near a cell, when a cell dies, if it dies through necrosis, of the one or, there are many kinds of necrosis, that will have a different effect on the environment from having a cell die from apoptosis. So necrosis, just to remind me, is, is, is blowing up and all the material just sort of gets spread around and, and apoptosis is it shrivels up and becomes a, vac a little vacuole of some kind? Well, what typically happens is that uh, during apoptosis, there are controlled pathways that break down the molecular components of the cell into particular defined components. Okay. Um, in general, if you are near cells that necrose, you have a tendency to necrose yourself. Uh, and uh, you leave behind a variety of gunk, which has different names in different environments. Uh, but uh, we can talk about that also a little bit later. Necrosis is more agnostic on what caused it, okay, um, or if it's being directed genetically. And apoptosis implies that the cell's genes had a hand in making that happen. Program so no. right. Thank you. But but just say as right. well, right. James, that it's not a it's not a, um, it's not a discrete or a sort of on-off switch. You you get a lot of overlap. Sure. People often speak about necroptosis. Yes. <laughs> 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 Just, just the way, just the way, there are many, many ways you can inherit phenotypic variation. There are many ways cells can die, and uh, I, I'm, I want to avoid for the moment making a specific list of all the ways cells can die. Uh, although in a particular cancer, of course, you would need to know that it would be very significant. So these are just generic statements about a solid tumor. The key thing here is that you have heritability and very strong selection. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, just to say that the, the reason why it might be important is because most of the therapies push the cell towards apoptosis. So there's a very important selective pressure when it comes to, to therapy-related issues. I mean, one of, the, one of the few places, I think, well, not few, one of the relatively few places where uh, genomics is, is actually has established a very strong correlation is that our friend P53 really does seem to be critical to most kinds of cell apoptosis. So you screw with P53, you're very likely to interfere with cells' apoptotic pathways. It's not 100%, but it's, it's a, a substantial correlation. Um, but what the point of this argument is simply to point out that there are many kinds of variation. So focusing on genetic mutations is eliminating many, perhaps most, kinds of variation. And the key is selection. And selection is not a genetic process. Um, excuse yes. me. Can you put some rough numbers on this? No. Just okay. <laughs> <laughs> a rate, for example, per replication or replication rate? It, it varies enormously depending on the cancer type. I mean, in late-stage cancers, you can have essentially one mutation every replication or more. In early-stage cancer, you might have one, 10 to the minus 6 or less. That's mutation. There are many other, as you said, variations with a yeah. much higher frequency. So, yes. So, your, your previous slide uh, sort of prepared me to see everything turned upside down. Um, but I'm sort of wondering what part of this uh, textbook would uh, sort of fiercely disagree with, aside from uh, 
uh, sort of usual emphasis on uh, this oncogen uh, or, or that oncogen, which you yourself uh, just offered. You know, P53 uh, would be um, prominently associated with one of, of your bullet points, right? But uh, then people would say that homeostasis in different tissues involves different pathways. So uh, uh, cancer in different tissues then involve different oncogenes. Um, I don't quite see everything upside down yet. Right. Well, that's the interesting point. If you tell this story to physicists, they'll say, of course that's how it works. You tell it to an oncologist, and they'll say, every single thing you've said is wrong. <laughs> Now you say this to uh, people like Gaden B at, at Moffitt or uh, Lubeck at, at, uh, at in, in, uh, in Seattle or people at MD Anderson or Friedel in Holland, and they'll say, "Well, this is right. This is all. This is our, uh, there's some synthesis here that is my own ideas, but mostly this is assembling ideas from other people." Uh, but it's not the standard approach. And there was this great NCI meeting a, a year, a little over a year ago, uh, which uh, uh, which was inviting a lot of physicists. And the keynote speaker was George Whitesides, who got up and said, effectively, that that genetics has set cancer research back like 30, 40 years. Uh, and the poor geneticists and the oncologists in the audience were, were fuming. But of course. George is very strongly spoken, so he got his way. I think the one way that it's different from a traditional perspective of someone who comes from developmental biology or developmental genetics is that, I mean, I don't feel uncomfortable saying this as someone who was trained as a classical developmental geneticist. There's an unspoken assumption that development has one right way to do mm -hmm. things, and that what we're trying to do by breaking genes and seeing what's messed up is figuring out the correct way and that everything that deviates from that is not a normal way. And what happens in classical laboratory model organisms where they're highly tractable, we ignore variation, and so we have a very poor understanding of variation, or a real, I think, intellectual acceptance of the fact that variation is the natural state of things. We're looking for it the right way, and what is, how many molecules of that transcript are in that cell at that time? We think we can measure this by the PCR. And so we miss out on an evolutionary perspective um, and it's hard for us to to come as a first pass to something like a tumor and say, what does this tell us about the range of developmental possibilities? Or in what way is this tumor like a liver? I want to know how the liver develops normally. Maybe I should think about how does a tumor develop properly? But, so maybe that's one way in which um, it could be for some people seen as something yeah. different. So if you understand correctly, what, what you're saying is uh, uh, so the uh, like the phenotypic yeah. progression of a tumor yeah. may be more universal than the actual pathways right. that would underlie it. And then uh, we can expect some great degeneracy right. of uh, uh, possible developmental processes for, for the tumor. Right. And, and in fact, focus on somebody's favorite pathway right which may even account for 30% of incidences of that particular thing, mm -hmm. is uh, somewhat counterproductive for understanding the remaining 70. Right. 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 But the other, exactly the other... So now what they're doing is they're saying, well, we can't do developmental biology in cancer, so let's just sequence every cell of tumors, and then we'll catch that developmental progression. Mm -hmm. Well, that's another point. Um, if you really are going to focus on variation first, 
there, are, there are a whole bunch of points. You've, you've already jumped through about 15 of my slides. Uh, but uh, the first point is that you cannot, and I will come back to this, you cannot understand a cancer from looking at a single cell. Because just the way a, mole a molecule, with some very specific exceptions, only has a function in, an, in a molecular or a structural context. A cell only has a function or a set of behaviors in a particular context. In both cases, the action of the cell or the molecule affects that context. So if you don't understand the pattern formation aspects of this problem, you're going to lose. And so by looking inside a single cell, you're always going to miss what's going on. Secondly, and this is a place where I think we are making a little progress, if you look at means, typical behaviors, you are even going to miss the degree of variation. And very often it's not the mean that's important, it's the standard deviation that's important, or something else, maybe the outliers. And that's also a way of looking at development that isn't employed very often. Well, so I have a comment on what Cassandra was saying, which is that I think in some cases, I mean, the missing point is not that development is unorganized, but one of the crucial keys in the development of cancer is the ex exposure of variation. That is, maybe in the normal tissue, develop, there's not that much variation. And it's bit, that's, that's, a, that's an experimental question to a, to a certain sense. Mm -hmm. And one of the key, key features in the transition to cancer is basically something that led to a exposure of a lot of variation, which right. is normally just not there. Right, or not appreciated right. because of or the way not that appreciate. so that's, that's yeah, a that's good, a that's a good experimental yeah, yeah. question. Right. Yeah, yeah, and it's very difficult to sort that out the way that developmental genetics literature gets processed. You know, if you do a gene expression study and you look at 100 whatever your units are, your cells or your embryos or whatever, you will not see 100 identical patterns. Right. And your students say, well, which one is the right <laughs> one? You say, look, I can't publish 50 different things. The papers have to say, this gene is expressed here and there's this much of it. So you can calculate some kind of range metric or you can pick the nice looking ones. Or, you know, I mean, that, that's exactly what happens. And so then this gives us from the literature uh, a very uh, blinded view of what is happening. And maybe if we had a way to efficiently incorporate these things, uh, the wider range, then we would find within, you know, these behaviors. Right. Well, the thing to me that, and I have to say that I'm really approaching this more from the point of view of a developmental biologist than a physicist. This is really what happens if you say thinking about cancer as a developmental process. It's not thinking about it as a physical process. Um, but the thing that has interested me always in development is the question of how do you get reproducible large-scale phenotype despite the enormous amount of variation that you have. If I take a frog at 1,000 cells and I cut the embryo in half, I get two frogs. That's a tremendous perturbation, and yet the organism is able to compensate it. I take a human cell embryo at four cells and cut it in half, and it dies. Well, four cells, maybe it's all right. Top 10 by four, I cut it in half. Drosophila have almost no compensatory ability in early stages because they're evolved to be very, very fast developers, and they give up some of that robustness. Uh, and so there are a lot of interesting questions here. But fundamentally, to me, the, the mystery of development is how you get reproducible results in the presence of large-scale variation. The same thing with homeostasis. How do you regulate something when you don't have an absolute standard and there's a lot of noise? How do you keep it from drifting off to infinity? And the answer is you can't quite do it. I think that's where cancer comes from. Can, can I just ask, yes. just 
little clarification yes. from some of the discussion. So when, when you're talking about development of CANSI, mm -hmm. are you implying the notion of a program? No. No, good, okay. Now, I mean, That's exactly the right. main point that I'm yeah. disputing okay. from the textbook. Uh, uh, and here, um, I mean, you could get something that's highly reproducible, either through a developmental program or through a very strong selection. Yes, but I don't, I'm not talking about developmental programs. No, no, per but, se. But exactly, you get the same end by two very different underlying processes. One is a roadmap, one is a strong selection. I, I think that our idea of roadmaps, I think, I think Hox genes have, have, are very significant, but in fact that their, their significance has been rather misunderstood. Here I some, I'm thinking you know, mutation and strong selection can give you an, uh, the same outcome each time. Yes, of course. Right. Because if the, if the selection is, if the selection pressures are the same, uh, well, we'll come back to that. If, if I'll, I'll, I'll jump ahead. If there is a very strong correlation between a particular phenotypic behavior of a cell and a particular genetic mutation, for example, p53 at apoptosis, then an understanding of genetics may give you some information about the important thing, which is the phenotypic variation. However, if you ask a question about cell adhesion or cell cycle, there are hundreds or thousands of genes which interact to regulate these things. And therefore, if you fixate on one particular gene, you're going to be looking, if you're lucky, at 5% or less of your population. There may be many, many different genetic solutions to the same problem. And so the last thing I want to talk about is what, what uh, Sandy Anderson, I took out the slide to try to streamline the talk, would call cancer's ecosystem, which is that most of the cancer literature thinks about the host. But it's not the host that's doing the evolving, it's the cells. And so instead of thinking about tumors from the point of view of the host, you have to think about them from the point of view of the cells. And that means that when you talk about things like changes in cell regulation, using words like deregulation and misregulation isn't really appropriate. You should be talking about re-regulation. James, you also made a comment with, with regard to yeah. extremely strong selection and mutation or genetics earlier. That you, did you imply they weren't connect, connected or state they weren't connected? I said that you have a rate of variation. Mm -hmm. There are many ways you can have phenotypically heritable variation. Some of those are genetic. Some of those are epigenetic. Some of those may be completely non-genetic. Okay, all I care about at the moment is that if I could quantify the range of phenotypic variation, then the degree of heritability, I need to make no statement whatsoever about the mechanism which gives rise to that variation. It will not affect my outcome. How about in the case of strong selection that leads to gene amplification events, which I think are probably very important for the progression of they make certain mutations, therefore, very likely. So there is a, um, by, by increasing target size, effectively. So there is, they're not totally independent processes. There's an amplification, many amplification events set up by selection. Um, if you have a specific variational mechanism, which you know and can quantify, then one can always put into a model of this kind that mechanism and ask the question, how does that specific mechanism affect the phenotypic change in the system? Um, but we're make, this is simply a biddable set of hypotheses. 
Okay. And so I want to come back to this, at least with the case of primary solid tumors, we are talking about a disease of cell behaviors because it's the cells that either will survive or not. We don't have any ambiguity here about who is surviving or not surviving. Uh, your organism dies, but it dies later. And there may be some issues about higher level organization later. We'll cover that later. And I just said this, and we've talked about it. The genetics is important when there's a strong correlation between some specific set of genetic changes and specific behaviors. But that's an accident. That's the kind of serendipity that physicists don't have the ability to deal with. Okay. All that matters is that there is transmissible variation in behavior. And in that case, the evolution of a tuber is going to depend primarily on selection. And yet, if you look at the literature, 99 point something percent of the literature focuses on the generation of variation. All the genomics focuses on generation of variation. And so this means that we are spending 99% of our effort looking at 5% of the problem. Is there any evidence for uh, heritable epigenetic uh, changes in cells? Absolutely. Uh, chromosome reorganization within the nucleus, uh, changes of cytoskeletal architecture, uh, small interfering RNAs, you name it. I mean, think about it. Now the flavor of the month is RNAi. 20 years ago, we didn't know it existed. And we have a whole mechanism of regulation that nobody knew existed. And somehow that doesn't change anything as far as, as the genomic proteomics people go. It's very interesting. Uh, so the, I want to come up with a couple of what I would call paradoxes. They may not seem paradoxical, but they're opposed to the standard literature. Um, in some cases, I'll cite the source for these. In some cases, not. And the first one is that after partial resection, you kill 90% of your cells with chemo. You irradiate the cell and kill 90% of the cells. You cut out most, but not all of it. And the tumor grows back. The tumor you get is often more aggressive. And this has been studied both experimentally and computationally. And it's especially associated with the Irvine group with Lander and Lohengrub and Heiko Anderling, who was, was there and is now at Tufts in their cancer institute. And the key things there are the observation that if you look at the percentage, ah, key thing for non-cancer people. It used to be thought that cancers had, the key property of a cancer was that the cells in the cancer could reproduce without respecting limits on cell replication. It's now known that most cells Almost all, 10 to the one in all but one in 10 to the sixth, one in 10 to the seventh um, cells in the cancer go through normal senescence. They reproduce a certain number of times and then they die. They may even respect stop signals for division. <coughs> However, there are some population of what have become called cancer stem cells, although that is a, was a very controversial term. These days it's less controversial, but still we can call them stem-like cells, that are immortal in the tumor. And what you see when you do partial resection in some way and then let the tumor grow back is that the percentage of stem-like cells increases in time. Now, if you look at staging of tumors, the percentage of stem-like cells in the tumor is a very high, strong predictor of metastasis. 
And so let's play a little game where I'm going to build some stem-like and somatic cancer cells. They're surrounded by some undifferentiated medium. The cells grow at a constant rate, not realistic. There's no limitation of nutrient. They divide, they move randomly, and they can die either because they run out of space or by senescence. They divide a certain number of times and then die. Uh, a, a stem cell can differentiate into a somatic cell, and so the rate of differentiation, the percentage of stem cell offspring that are somatic can change. And we're going to count the number of cell cycles, the passage of the cell, and we'll allow mutation of these two properties. That is, the percentage of offspring that are stem-like and the number of generations to senescence. And, and the never, cells... Sorry, it never goes from somatic back to stem? No. That's a definition of a somatic cell. Now, you can argue that in some cancers, you, that's exactly what happens, but we're going to leave that out of this model. But this, yes? But the stem cells produces mostly somatic cells. No, it has to produce, normally it will produce one stem cell and one somatic cell on a division. Okay, fine, but I mean... But sometimes it can produce two stem cells. Sometimes two somatic cells. I mean, you have that can be allowed, yes, yes, yes. But then the stem cells over. Then it disappears. Yeah. And when you uh, say growth, do you mean in physical size of the cell? Yeah, well, it's growth and division. So the cell will grow at a constant rate, which is unrealistic because it gives you exponential growth of the tissue. Grow in size. And then at divides at a, at a fixed volume. Okay. There's no cell cycle model in there. This is, by the way, not my model. Let's take this model. So we can... Ginger, stem cells never senesce because no. stem cells also right. do senesce. Well, they can, but in general, stem cells are considered to be, in this case, immortal. At least don't senesce over the time scale of this particular simulation. Uh, yes? Do you have any idea why stem cells never die and the other ones die? Well, because they have to divide. The typical number of cell divisions in your body that's allowed for somatic cells is about 40, give or take a factor of two. And if you look at, say, the stem cells in your colonic crypt, they have a mean cycle time of a couple of days. And so if they were, became senescent after 40 cell divisions, you wouldn't have an intestine. Well, they express telomerase also, which mm -hmm. regenerates the telomeres. So right. one way they yes. Nonetheless, stem cells that are operative in, in vivo do get old. Yeah. And, and telomerase is not the only reason why cells die. That's true. I mean, in fact, I think there's good evidence from the automatic stem cells, that's my bad, that oxidative stress is the main mechanism why a lot of stem cells die. So this is not, not uh, terribly attrition, although it's, it's a component. It's for precisely this reason that I'm keeping my discussion at an extremely high level focused on, on cell behavior and not discussing specific mechanisms. Because for a particular cancer, you will, of course, need to understand the particular mechanisms at work. But we're talking about a very generic question here, which is what happens to the percentage of stem cells in time and the number of generations that our, uh, our uh, somatic cells can survive. And the cells here can stick to each other, and they compete for space. The scarce resource in this case is space, uh, which can be true. And so. We have stem cells and somatic cells. At each division, the cells can differentiate or not. And after row generations, they die if they're, if they're somatic. And here's a little simulation of that. We start out with one stem cell here, yellow. Um, 
these simulations are going to be gamed so that they're very small. So the rates of mutation are high compared to reality. The number of cells is low. These simulations are in 2D, although they're easy to do in 3D. They just take more time. Now what you'll see, of course, is that the number of yellow cells increases with time, but that the percentage of yellow cells stays roughly constant until the cells start competing for space. Here, you notice they're competing for space because they're bumped up against a wall, and the fraction of yellow is going up. So the increase in the number of stem cells is mostly related to a stem cell giving rise to two stem cells, That's or right. to mutation from a non-stem cell to a stem cell like so what I can do in this simulation, and this will keep running, is ask the question of uh, what number of cells of each type do I have? I'm not going to focus on that. Um, what the probability of a stem cell giving rise to two stem cells is? And what I see is that that probability increases in time. Eventually, it's going to saturate. In, in the early stages, before it hits the wall, yeah. Uh, wouldn't you expect the uh, probability of going to a one stem cell and, and, and one uh, somatic cell, or the branching ratio of, yes. the, of the cell division, to depend on whether it was in the middle or on the perimeter of the growing cluster? In this, in this very simplified model, the key issue is whether you can divide or not. If you can't divide, you can't mutate, because mutation only happens on cell division. So if, uh, if you're too crowded, you can't divide in the simulation? That's right. But there always are cells that are dying, and therefore, in the simulation, there is always some room for cell division. I see. So the ones that die are simply removed, and then their space is available That's right. for other cells. Again, I'm not, I don't want to particularly focus on the simulation, which is very simplified. Uh, but I just want to give you, this is, as I say, work primarily of Lander and Lohengrub and Enderling. Um, but the key thing, their, their model, their, this is our, our representation of their model is slightly different. The key thing is that the branching probability goes up for stems. And the number of generations that my somatic cells survive goes down. Do you, how do you compute this probability? No, it's, a, it's, a, it's an evolved quantity. But it must depend on your initial assumptions yeah. uh, as to how you do the branching on a cell-by-cell -cell basis. Each cell starts out with a particular, well, there's only one cell to begin with, and it starts out with a particular numerical probability of producing two stem cells. Uh, in this case, there is no death of stem cells due to, due to division. So that if the stem cell stem cell always produces either one stem cell and one somatic cell or two stem cells, I don't have the process where it differentiates into two somatic cells. It doesn't change Is things much. If I do. Yes, but because it's replicating a model, a published model. Okay. Run the movie again. Yes. That'd be very helpful. Thank you. Okay. But but it really doesn't make much difference. You get the same result. I just say what we're seeing. Okay. Here is an initial stem cell. The yellow one. The yellow one. It reproduces and produces a cloud of somatic cells, red. the red ones. It also occasionally will produce an extra stem cell, which will then go on to produce more somatic cells. Initially, all the somatic cells will stay alive until they reach their counter of generations, at which point some of them will die. And you'll see actually clusters of die off if you look carefully. 
The somatic cells, of course, divide. Yes. Well, the black is just empty space. Empty space. Now, what you will see. It's in a continuum, in a sense. Yes. It's not on a lattice. It's on, well, it is on a lattice, but the, oh. but the lattice is very small compared to the cell very size. Fine. Right. The cells have a finite volume. Okay. And they're competing for space as the resource they're competing for. Yes. Bart. Stem cells play here. Now we know that the, there are stem cells and they do play a role, but uh, but here it's not that uh, you know 48 uh, division cycles is enough for differentiated cells to fill the universe. Oh, it's crucial because the red cells are a dead end. They will produce a, a single somatic cell will produce a maximum volume of tissue, of tumor tissue, and then it will die. And its offspring will die. Well, but usually it's not to the 48th. It's usually 20. Yeah, no, I understand. And you can even make an eight. And it's it's highly it's highly significant. In most solid tumors, this is a very significant process. If you look at progression of cancers, one of the key things that you will see is an increase in the percentage of stem of stem cell dividing into two stems. And the reason, fundamentally, is that the yellow cells essentially exponentially increase the mass of the tumor, and the red cells linearly increase the mass of the tumor. Well, maybe I'll, I'll rephrase the question. So I think you're building in uh, various uh, sort of regulatory uh, responses. Uh, uh, so for, for example, you were talking about compression, mm -hmm. right? So are your stem cells ready do stem cells, do stem cells in this simulation? You respond to compression the same way as somatic cells? Identically. The only difference between these two cell types is whether they die after, in this case, to make the simulation finite, nine cell divisions. Yes? Uh, what happens to a cell? So the cell divides. Yes. Where does the daughter cell go to? Next to the existing cell. The space that originally is occupied by this two cell now is occupied by two cells. So the it's funny because it looks like the, the yellow spots don't come to bed when they suddenly diffuse. Yes, because well, that's a, that's an interesting question because the yellow cells are producing offspring. Most of those offspring are red, and therefore you have a tendency to surround a red cell with a layer, a yellow cell with a layer of red cells. There are a whole bunch of other nice, nice things that they did, but this is, is not my work. Yes, go ahead. So the probability of giving rise to a stem cell or a somatic cell per agent doesn't change. It's the overall frequency of, of having a, a surviving stem cell that increases. Each cell carries two numbers. If I'm a somatic cell, I carry the number of generations that I can divide before I die and my generation, my passage number. If I am a stem cell, I carry the percentage of my offspring that will be stem-like and the number of generations that they will be able to live if they are somatic. At each cell division, those numbers are allowed to change with some small probability. And they are allowed to go up or down with equal probability with appropriate weighting so they don't peg out at zero or infinity. Um, so that. There is no bias. In other words, at each division, the probability that the stemless quotient goes up or down is the same. At each division, the probability that the lifetime goes up or down is the same. So this 
evolution towards a higher number is not built into the evolution. It's a result of the selection operating in this particular environment. Same thing for the decrease in the number of generations. Yes? So in, in, the, in colon cancer, for example, the stem cells turn, don't turn over at the same rate as the somatic cells. In fact, the stem cells differentiate into a stem cell and a precursor cell, which then cascades. Mm -hmm. And so the stem cell then goes to sleep for a while until it's needed again to cycle. And so in some sense, the time at which the stem cells turn over, if you, if you change that, your simulation will be very different. Yes, you could certainly say that the, the typical cell cycle time of the stem cells and the somatic cells is different. But again, the, the goal here is to build a minimal model. We're going to assume that everything is the same unless we explicitly say it's different. So the only differences between these two cell types are that the red cells die after a certain number of generations. And when you it's say that there is a, a competing for space, so this mm -hmm. incremental change is then just a proportional reduction of the uh, division rate? The cells, only tight or the, the cells only divide when they get to a certain threshold size. Now, and there's space available near them. The cells are trying to, every cell is trying to grow at the same rate. Right. So the cell's target volume will increase in a constant rate, but the cell can only grow if there's space available to it to grow. The division happens when the cell reaches a fixed size rather than a fixed target volume or a fixed concentration of some chemical inside. So effectively, if space is scarce, then the division rate will go down. That's true, yes. It will go down proportionally for all the processes. Yes, that's the right. Bias. That's it right. Slows down. That's right. But in fact, you get a, a genetic, uh, you get a selection of cells with particular phenotype. What drives that uh, increase in that bottom curve? It's the, the rate at which uh, a stem cell produces two stem cells rather than right. As I say, when you have a mutation, it's equally likely that your percentage of stem cell offspring would go down rather than up. Yeah. So, why so it's a selective effect. That's what I'm saying. It is, you can't know why it goes down rather than up if you don't look at the interaction with the environment. It's a competition for resources. What? And this, I'm not going to show you the simulation. I tried to run it last night, and I didn't have time. Um, if you were to take this simulation, which Lander and Lohengrub have done, and again, this is all their work, and you were to cut out half, let this tumor grow to fill the space, and now I cut off half of it to, let's say, to the left or to the right to simulate partial resection, or I killed 90% of the cells at random to simulate hitting it with a chemotherapeutic or radiation, and let it grow back, what you'll see is there'll be a huge discontinuous jump in the number of yellow cells. What happens fundamentally is that the yellow cells are more able to exploit space. If I have two yellow cells, one of which has a higher percentage of stem-like offspring than the other, the one with the higher percentage of stem cells will, over time, outcompete the one with a lower number of stem cells. Because ultimately, it's only the number of stem cells that matter but red cells and sensor red herring. The yes. ecologists would not agree with you. They would say that if you resect the tumor, the reason the stem cells grow better is that they can deal with chemotherapy better. That's not right. Almost certainly better. wrong. It's almost certainly wrong. 
But how is that different? Doesn't that sounds like a mechanistic explanation, and what you're describing sounds like a phenomenological description? No, but I don't see that they're incompatible. If if I kill if I selectively kill off more red cells than yellow cells, I'll get an even bigger effect where I go towards yellow cells. But the fact is that if I if this cell suppose that I were in a situation where I didn't bias things, so the number of generations here were larger, I would fill this space and cell division would stop. At that point, there's no evolution. If I now take out half of this space, I have lifted a constraint on replication. I have lifted a constraint on evolution. I will get very rapid evolution. This is like extinguishing a species and letting a species evolve into a niche that was formerly occupied. And so what I'll see is then the yellow cells will jump in percentage. You think all it's all space? It's all space issue. No, I'm not saying that in a real tumor it's all a space issue. I'm saying in this simulation the scarce resource is space. Okay. Is I want to show you if we get to it, I'll show you some simulations <laughs> where we have other resources. Is there any any uh, effect here for cooperation? That is spatial structure. If you change diffusion rates, uh, would you get a different? Uh, behavior? Yes. The mixture of the cell is completely different. Yes. I don't like to use words like cooperation, so levels, uh, cheaters, or For anything the sake else. of physicists, I'm saying spatial structure. Yes, okay. you'll get spatial structure. Like you get mixing, no, but you can, you can, you know, you can introduce rate of diffusion here, or mixing, whatever. Would, would that change the, the course of evolution if they mix very quickly, or they stay together in patches? Yes. That's right. It will. So, um, all of those things are true. What I want to point out is that we started out with the most simple possible model I could come up with, and we seem to have discovered something that's non-obvious, which happens to be true of most cancers, solid tumors. So can I interrupt yes. you just last, one last time? So the, the model that fits, the, the tumor that fits your model the best is breast cancer, because it grows inside the duct in the epithelial line and grows inwards. Mm -hmm. Right, so so if you are right, then the in DCIS the ductal carcinoma in situ, when it fills the, the duct, should have on average more stem cells. But I don't remember anyone. So I is that true? That the, this more stem cells than let's say hyperplasia. Yes, it's just initiated but not not fill the duct. This model was, in fact, developed, as you know, Lander, Lowe, and Grubb, and Enderling worked initially on ductile carcinoma in situ. And so this model was, in fact, developed a model specifically to be an abstraction of breast cancer. And it was based on experimental work that they did, uh, which showed that the percentage of stem cells went up. Somehow I still don't understand what the, the role of this selection, because in some sense, at least once this space is filled, yes. the process is obviously in a constant race, right? Because you, if you have something filled with a red dot, this can disappear after a while, while and then it can be either filled with a yellow or a red dot, and the red dot will be, and the yellow dot will be immortal. So it's mm -hmm. clear that once the space is filled, it has to become yellow all the time. Absolutely. Even without any uh, variance in the rates and any selection on these division rates? Or there is no selection on rates. The re selection comes about through precisely the mechanism you described. In so that sense, this is a trivial model. What I'm trying to point out, though, is that it's not trivial for most of the people in the room. Okay. 
So you're smarter than most of the people in the room, which is good. Uh, and so for you, uh, I mean, as I say, telling this story to the physics audience, very often there was all this, but that's obvious, of course it works that way. But it's not so obvious for people who actually work in the field, which is rather interesting. And in your graph, all you're saying is like the variation, you point out the variation that, you know, that this, this fractions um, uh, can vary and so on, but even if it's constant fractions, mm -hmm. Everything else is constant, just space is limited. Yeah. I would get yellow. Right? That's right, but the rate of increase of yellow is much faster than it would be under that situation. And how does the uh, yellowness approach unity in that bottom curve? Is it known? The time. There are all sorts of finite size effects, and the particular rates here matter, and the particular rules will matter. But you mean, how does it? Obviously, it can't form, be bigger than one, so it has to. It has to one, and so the functional form could be an exponential approach, or power law approach in time. Is that known? You're dead long before you get there. The answer is no. <laughs> it's not known. Um, again, I'm showing you. I'm showing. I think. I think what's wonderful. I think what. I mean. I think what I like here very much is the fact that you're asking a lot of very good follow-on questions. I'm here just simply presenting uh, one of many simulations done by this group. Um, I will say again, if you look at their simulations, the methodology is somewhat different, and so the detailed results are slightly different, but the, the general observation is the same. Can we get any of these three to come up here? You can get all of them to come up here. They were sort of disappointed they weren't invited. Well, Flo and Grove was invited, never responded. Uh -huh. so, yep. You probably emailed him. Well, how else do you reach? Home. <laughs> oh. uh, okay. We call that a good faith effort. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I don't want to transmit, uh, I don't want, I don't want to be a vector of bad will here. Well, can you invite uh, one of the other two, or perhaps? Yeah, well, I can certainly invite them, and there's also Natalia Komarova down there who's very good, too. It's more mathematical. Would Anderling be the best one? Uh, he's a tough, he's a little further away, but I'm sure he'd love to come. Okay. Were you on the list that you said? Yes. Not, Heiko I didn't put, actually, I think. He's a tough. So may I, may I uh, now just... By all means. Let me... Please continue. Let me, I'm sorry, because they're also very late. Maybe I'll have to give the rest of this talk this afternoon. What time is it? Quarter after 11. Oh. You're good. We can continue at 1.30 if you, okay. you want to. I mean, I've gotten through basically the first of my five examples. <laughs> but it's very interesting. No, but it's fine. I mean, I, there, the, but, but what I, I want to... I suggest we don't rush it. And right. we, I'd much rather... I'd much rather... Score. And right, and then the two people who want to come at 1.30 can have another dose. Um, so, the basic observation here is that the percentage of stem-like cells increases in time. As you point out, that would happen even if I didn't have variation. But... As a side effect of the variation, the percentage, the branching probability to two stem cells increases, and the number of generations that my somatic cells survive decreases. And I didn't show the simulation, but if you cut out half, you see a jump in these quantities. So I'd like to just make a metaphor here. Um, Nixon famously declared war on cancer back in the 74, I believe. Um, and I would posit that there's no reason it should be true. There's no reason that this, these metaphors should be true. But one thing that maybe we have not failed to learn from our experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan is that when you attack things, they become more aggressive in return. 
And uh, so is that like antibiotic resistance in bacteria? Yes. And uh, essentially, the resolution of this paradox uh, is that the niche opened by relifting, in this case, a space limitation, but it could be a nutrient limitation or a growth factor limitation, uh, favors more aggressive phenotypes. They're more rapidly able to colonize the space and take advantage of it. Um, and that suggests that looking for therapies that are going to kill tumor cells better uh, isn't necessarily a good strategy. Uh, there's a whole, uh, a couple of years ago there was a, a meeting organized by the EU uh, science agency in Brussels I went to. Was, I was very pleased to go because uh, at this time I really hadn't done much work on cancer at all. Uh, they had about 100 people uh, to try to do a, a roadmap document for uh, EU funding on cancer. And uh, they wanted a slogan um, for um, the way forward in cancer, and I suggested based on these kinds of results that the, maybe the slogan should be a happy tumor is a happy patient, <laughs> which was not a big success. <laughs> uh, Russell didn't like it. No, it didn't sprout, but uh, uh, instead the word was tumor normalization. And uh, people, people like uh, Bob Gatenby um, have been preaching tumor normalization for 30 years, uh, more or less into the wilderness, but now there are more and more people interested in taking this argument seriously and saying, instead of looking for ways to kill cancer cells, you look for ways that you can work with this very strong evolutionary bias, to me, strong evolutionary selection, to bias the selection to make the cells less invasive. And so if you can do that, if you can understand the mechanisms that drive progression, in principle, this selection, because variation is non-directional, you can bias selection to favor less aggressive phenotypes. And if you can do that, in principle, you don't have to kill a single cell to do it. Now, it doesn't necessarily get rid of the tumor, but it then becomes something that you live with. And there's a lot of statistical argument, but if you live to be 90 and you die and you're autopsied, and they do a good autopsy, you'll have somewhere between 10 and 100 benign tumors in your body, which you died with that didn't cause any problem. And so if you can coax these cells not to progress... Not benign, like localized. Well, localized, not early stage, early stage. Non, they didn't kill you, let's put it that way. Yes, you don't know what the staging is. Yes. Uh, uh, they could have been metastatic from something, but they didn't grow. And they didn't spread more. And so uh, in this case, cancer then becomes a chronic disease, like diabetes and it's manageable. And there's some very uh, interesting experiments over the years where people take frank cancer cells, implant them into embryos, and they go on to generate normal embryonic tissue with effectively no uh, apparent damage to the organism. This is a mouse? Mm. So are there any studies comparing the treatment to non-treatment in regard to the efficacy of this? Um, well, this doesn't say you shouldn't treat. It just says that, that looking for things to kill cells. I mean, what is a standard chemotherapeutic? Standard chemotherapeutic kills dividing cells. The reason that the, that the, the uh, side effects are usually so crummy 
is that there are a lot of cells in your body that divide a lot that you need. And so killing all the dividing cells in your body makes you very sick. Targeted therapies attempt to kill only the dividing cells which have particular characteristics, usually molecular markers. And that's a little better, provided that the thing that they're looking for isn't specific, isn't generalized in the body. This idea is that um, if you uh, can bias the evolution, then the tumor will just stop growing and sit there. It doesn't go away, but it sits there. So Gaden B has very nice work, for example, where he, one of the things that happens in set tumors is what's called Warburg effect, where cells become hypoxic, the cells go through anaerobic metabolism. That means that they become acidic, and that the acidosis of the tumor, tumor cells are resistant to that acid, acidification. The environment isn't, and so it kills the cells around it and allows the tumor to grow. So uh, Gatton B has done something very simple, which is inject baking soda into the bloodstream of mice, which have well, skid mice, with, which, and looked at tumor growth. And the tumors grow a little bit, and then they stop. They don't metastasize. They don't progress. The problem is if you scale that up to a human level, you would have to be putting two kilograms of baking soda into your bloodstream a day. And there are a lot of aspects of your physiology that depend on blood pH. So it's not practical to try to knock your blood pH. On the other hand, you could imagine a targeted therapy which goes into a tumor selectively and changes the local pH. And that would probably be much less toxic than the typical cytotoxics that are used today. What effect does it have on the tumor? The tumors grow up to a point and then they stop. They become homeostatic, homeostatic treadmill. Wait, because uh, they can't uh, kill the neighbors uh, by. Uh, you have to ask Bob to come. Age? You have to ask Bob to come. Or does it shift them uh, out of the water cycle? Uh, the answer probably is yes to all of those. I mean, this is this is. Uh, that that's exactly what they're studying now. Is trying to understand exactly what's happening. It's it's a it's a it's a it's an empirical observation. It's not true of every kind of of tumor. It's not true of every kind of mouse. Mice are not humans, etc. But but the basic observation that he's got a bias in the environment, which can lead to selection for less invasive phenotypes or maintenance of non-invasive phenotypes, is is the point. So, so somehow, at the point that these tumors stop and, and don't grow anymore, they have to deviate very much from the simplified model, right? Or is that... Sorry, sorry. I mean, at that point, they have to deviate very much from that simplified model, don't they? Because in that model, there's still this red and yellow asymmetry, which I have a hard time to see how this can be avoided over long times. Ah, well, that's interesting because you could make the same point about all the stem cells in your body that are rapidly proliferating. And we'll come to that. No, I mean, I agree with you completely. It's, a, it's actually a very interesting point. I don't quite understand uh, how one can uh, normalize or actually select against dividing cells. Right? Well, it's the not just... The selection that we now go in our favor is uh, 
proliferation. No. So uh, how do you, how do you, uh, and the, as Michael pointed out, just the fact that uh, you know your stem cells are going to take uh, uh, space, take the place of uh, the red cells, right? Will basically drive uh, the process unless you manage to talk the cells into not dividing by means other than just killing them. So, so it would be nice to uh, uh, sort of prevent cell division, but in a way, right, that also has, again, has to be targeted and we're back to chemotherapy. Um. I think you're, you're combining a lot of very good questions together. One of them is, if cancer, solid tumor progression were just about the percentage of stem-like offspring, could you normalize the tumor? And I agree with you both that the answer is probably no in that case. And maybe I should have given a list of the standard nine stages of tumor progression. I'll come back to those in a bit. That's actually a, a background slide I took out because it, I, but there are many stages, many phenotypic behaviors that the cells have to acquire to be able to become frank metastatic cancer cells. Okay, the percentage of stem-like offspring is just one of them. Um, so tumor normalization could work by blocking one or more or biasing against one or more of those progressive behaviors. Um, I'll talk a lot. Uh, either now or later, about cell adhesion. One of the main things that happens early in cancer progression is that the cells become less adhesive to each other and more adhesive to the extracellular matrix. Um, that is something you might be able to bias. Uh, one of the things that happens is that the cells uh, have a Warburg effect, where uh, normally cells switch between aerobic and anaerobic metabolism at a particular level of oxygen tension. But in tumor cells, they tend to stay in anaerobic metabolism, even at higher oxygenations. Another factor would be the fact that the vasculature that grows into tumors is leaky and unstable. And so people like Friedel and Carmelite. Carmelite has a big clinical trial. Um, this, this is jumping ahead, but, but probably the worst thing that has been developed in the way of cancer therapies, besides prostate screening and breast cancer screening, is, and, and uh, um, um, Whitesides gave some statistics on that. It's really a disaster. Colon cancer screening, colonoscopy endoscopy is a, is a good buy. You're actually much more likely to survive based on that. A breast cancer screening is marginal. Prostate screening, actually, you're more likely to get killed by the treatment than you are, unnecessary treatment than you are if you're not treated. Uh, by the screening itself? Well, the screening itself has its own problems. Like what? It's uncomfortable? It's uncomfortable, there's anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of things are uncomfortable. No, no. It takes a second. But you're saying that it would be better not to do it because if you do the, if you do the treatment, the treatment is more likely to kill you than yeah. the cancer, so might as well not find out about no. it. Because you can't triage it. Mm -hmm. And this is what Whiteside's message was actually at that NCI meeting, which was what we need is better ways not to treat, to identify who, wouldn't, who, who we, will, we should not treat. And the worst offender in this way is antiangiogenics. Um, 
and again, the statistics are all over the place, but somewhere on the order of 20% of people benefit from anti-angiogenics, 80% are harmed by them. The problem is that the very few people who are actually benefit, benefit a lot. And so, as you know, in the case of breast cancer, Avastin and other anti-angiogenics have been uh, um, licensed and then taken off the market and then licensed and taken off the market again. Um, and, and they actually come in later in this talk. Um, uh, but uh, in a sense, what you want to do if you think about tumor normalization, and there's also vascular normalization tumor. So what, so what anti-angiogenic does is try to kill the vasculature in the tumor. And I'll explain why that's usually a terrible idea. Uh, Carmelite is giving molecules that make the blood vessels in the tumor normalize and become happy, in quotation marks, so that they are stable and the tumor has plenty of nutrient. If the tumor has plenty of nutrient, it doesn't have to become invasive. The cells in it don't have to become invasive, let me be specific. And therefore, it doesn't metastasize. And so, in a sense, what we need is to work with somatic evolution, essentially to coat cancers back from these uh, dangerous behaviors. And this example of implanting cancer cells into an embryo and having them normalized is sort of the, the locus classicus for that. But of course, we have to understand how to keep the cells in these early states happy, give them a situation which is favorable to, favorable to them compared to their more invasive in what you're saying, I don't hear any downside for surgical removal. No, if you can get every cell, that's the best way to do it. But if you can't, you're stuck. Um, then it goes back to the first paradox that if you miss some, the stuff that comes back is going to be worse than what you had originally. Yeah. I mean, this is. No, no. I mean, if you could, if you could surgically remove every cancer cell. You're clean. Right. Now then there's a separate issue, which is if you happen to have a particular genetic uh, gene genotype that is susceptible to creating new cancers, then of course you can lose again. But uh, that's a different question. But there's another problem, which is that well, by the time most tumors are detected, they're already in the blood. They've already metastasized in some sense. They've already gone someplace else. They don't have a niche in which to grow yet. Yeah, there's always no, if the tumor is spread, you're not getting rid of the whole tumor. It means by getting rid of the whole tumor, you mean getting rid of every cancer cell in your body. Um, and and even even more interesting therapies like immunotherapies. Uh, some of these immunotherapies, which essentially work by putting people into immune shock, into septic shock. Um, are extremely effective. You, you hit, hit somebody with a big dose of IL-2, they go into septic shock, and their tumors shrink 90%, 95%, 99%. Unfortunately, if you don't shrink 100%, three weeks later, you're back where you were, and you've damaged the body from the, from the septic shock. Um, on the other hand, in some cases, you actually get all the cells that way, because the immune system doesn't care where they are. So that's one of the few ways that actually could cure a, a metastatic cancer. Uh, but uh, otherwise, we're talking about surgical removal of the individual tumors when you can identify them. I predict, that, I predict that the Republicans in Congress are not going to like your suggested action. 
I mean, this one. Problem. <laughs> I have to go back to Boris's question. I don't understand what's normalization. I mean, the underlying thing here is that you're assuming that cells are almost normal. They want to be under some condition. They will just go back to the normal behavior. Because if you're talking about evolution and growing population, there's always a selection pressure to go back to growth. So no, 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 no. No. I, I, you, Normalization was definitely not part of the model you were representing there, but I'm not sure how would you represent it in the model at all. Well, um, suppose, suppose that you have one of the hallmarks of cancer progression is a reduced cell cell adhesivity. That's a standard early marker for cancer progression. I will show you, if either now or this afternoon, why that is the case. I will explain to you what conditions give rise to selection for less cohesive cells. Once you know that situation, you could come up potentially with a treatment that eliminates that selective pressure and selects for more cohesive cells. It doesn't kill any cells. You don't have to kill cells because you have a high turnover rate. Cells are dying anyway. And if you bias in that direction, you will then have the average adhesivity of the cells increase in time through somatic evolution. If you don't have the reduction in cell-cell adhesion, you will not get metastasis. So in some therefore, if you can, sorry, therefore, if you can bias the tumor to select for more cohesive cells, you will not have metastasis. That is an example of tumor normalization. Now, I'm not telling you how to do it. I'm not saying if you use molecule X, you will get this. But I'm giving you an example of what you mean by normalization. I will give you another example of why I believe vascularization leads to metastasis. And it has nothing to do with the fact that it's easier for cells to invade the bloodstream. It has to do with very specific selection pressures. If you could keep the blood vessels stable in the tumor, you would eliminate or reduce that selection pressure. And again, you could block metastasis. In some cases, tumors have turned on the growth pathway constitutively. For example, in HER2 positive tumors of the breast, they have actually changed the signaling mechanism such that there's no way to turn it back to normal. Not true. At least That's not true. So Herceptin targets that, and so there are targeted therapies that work in that case. And perhaps what you're saying is that you normalize by finding the therapies that move it towards normalization rather than but how is that different from what people are trying to do anyway? That's what people are trying to do, figure out the biology and turn the tumor back on itself. Mm -hmm. Normally, tar well, it depends. Of course, I don't know every targeted therapy. Um, I've been reading up on them a lot in the past couple of weeks because my mother has metastatic lung cancer. Uh, and there's essentially nothing to do. And I find myself in the odd position of recommending radiation uh, when I think that it's a terrible idea in general. Uh, but uh, uh, the short-term advantages are still probably significant. You maybe survive 12 months instead of six months. Uh, although I'm going to be away for two days this week because I have to help her get through that. Uh, the targeted therapies for lung cancer are uh, uh, EGF receptor, ALK, RASL. Um, in both cases, the tumors very rapidly evolve the ability to get around those limitations. So that would not be what would be called a normalization therapy in this sense. 
And normalization therapy would be something that would actually bias the evolution of the tumor itself in favor of less invasive phenotypes, less destructive phenotypes. Depending on the specific kind of cancer, a specific locus, etc., what you mean by normalization will vary. You might say you want the cells to stay more cohesive to each other. You might want them to have a reduced motility. You might want them to have uh, less ability to uh, enter the bloodstream. You might want them not to produce growth factors for themselves. You might want them to produce, uh, not be able to hide from the immune system. Um, these are all things that you could, in principle, modulate without killing cells directly. For example, there now is some sort of sporadic evidence that actually giving extra testosterone can reduce the progression of prostate cancer because it inhibits the self-production of uh, And the same thing could happen with estrogen. In some cases, giving estrogen to a breast cancer actually could reduce the rate at which you evolve the ability of, of these cells to not, to not acquire estrogen. You could do that what they call metronomic therapies, where you hit the cells with a chemo to kill a large fraction of them, and then you bias them with something that makes them susceptible to that chemo. That's not a full normalization, because you're still going to kill the cells, but it suggests ways of more nuanced approaches where you use the strong evolutionary selection in the tumor in your favor. The problem with classic chemo is that, and breast cancer is the classic example of this, metastatic breast cancer, you can keep people alive for years because you give them a chemo, it works for a year, 16 months, the cancer evolves resistance to it, you give them another chemo, and then another one, you keep them going 10 or 12 years before it evolves resistance to all the chemos you've got. But it's still a big time, a long time. The problem, of course, is you're sick during all that time for most of those chemos. But again, the problem is if you try to kill the cells, you are putting in, the one thing you know from uh, the question of what fitness is, is that if you kill the cells, that reduces their fitness. The cell that gets killed is less fit. And so your silencers are going to be very good at evolving around mechanisms that go in and try to kill cells. That's all. And I'm not giving a specific hypo hypothesis about the best way to fix this. I'm just saying that this is something people are working on. Okay, what, we should probably break, huh? Sure, yeah, what it's time? about 20 to 12. Okay. So, uh, <coughs> um, I mean, I can do one more if you want. There, there are five of them. Okay. This is also a, a question that was posed originally by, um, and this is a short one because I'm not going to show you, I don't think, any real simulations on this one. I think it's a very good one to work on. It's one I'd suggest people think about. One of the uh, stages of uh, cancer progression that is uh, typical is what is called the epithelial to mesenchymal transition. Uh, for uh, physicists and mathematicians in the audience, there are a number of uh, cell morphologies that, and organizations that are typical. Uh, while we think of ourselves as three-dimensional structures, most of the cells in your body are organized into what are called epithelia, that is, thin layers of cells which have tight binding within the layer between the cells, 
relatively weak binding if they're multiple layers stacked on top of each other. So think of stacks of paper with some weak, maybe post stacks of post-it notes. Um, uh, mesenchymal cells, typical of connective tissue, is a cell that basically may not be completely isotropic, but at least doesn't organize into this tightly bound layered structure. So one of the mysteries Are is... Are there linear structures as well? The linear structures? Body? Yeah, as opposed to the planar one. Yes, planar, there's... Myofibers, um, neurons, um, but uh, the, the majority of structures in your body are actually made up of layers that are then folded in particular ways. Connective tissue is not a huge amount. And so one of the start questions that I'm sure was asked before, but I was introduced to from uh, uh, Arthur and, and uh, John at Irvine, is the question that if you have to go through this epithelial to mesenchymal transition to become metastatic, why are most cancers epithelial in origin rather than mesenchymal in origin? If you're already a mesenchymal cell, you don't have to make that step. You've already made it. And so in that sense, it should be easier for a mesenchymal cell to become a cancer cell than for an epithelial cell to become a cancer cell. The and cancer is turnover rate and the fact that you meet carcinogens all the time. Exactly. So one possible answer is exactly this, and I, I, but I think it's a little more specific than that. Epithelial tissues have to be replaced at a rapid rate because they're exposed to some kind of environment. Uh, and again, there are plenty of counterexamples to this, but this is a generic statement. For example, in your intestines, your skin, elsewhere. Um, those cells, tissues, have a relatively large population of rapidly replicating stem cells because the stem cells have to give rise then to the cells that are going to replace the tissue. Uh, if you have two stem cells that vary in any phenotypic respect at all, one of those stem cells will in fact in that environment have a slightly better fitness than the other. And that's the, the most I will ever say about fitness. <laughs> um, that means that over time that more fit phenotype will take over and there will be a drift in whatever that phenotypic trait is. Uh, if you study things like colonic crypt organization in development, you find that the structure of the colonic crypt There are a couple of stem cells at the bottom. One, two, a few. They reproduce. Some of those offspring differentiate, become what are called transiently amplifying cells. They reproduce a lot. Uh, and then they terminally differentiate, stop dividing, and eventually fall off at the top uh, into the intestines. Um, there are a lot of interesting questions about what regulates the population of stem cells here. 
however, these stem cells are reproducing quite rapidly. The typical lifetime here of a cell once it's split off is about two weeks to go from here to here. So it's a little bit like an ant or a bee, if you like. Okay. If, for some reason, there is a phenotypic variation here that favors a particular stem cell, it will take over. That's, not, uh, that's simply a, a tautological statement about what we mean by fitness. Um, there is, if you look at the way this structure is maintained, there are a variety of mechanical, biochemical, uh, juxtacrine and paracrine signaling mechanisms that mean that you can maintain this structure over a fairly wide range of fluxes of cells. However, that regulation has a, ba a width. If you replicate too fast here, this smooth epithelial layer becomes disorganized, which is what you call a polyp, which is what you remove typically when you have a colonoscopy. Once you have that disorganization, then other things start to happen. So what you have here is some, let's just say, some, let's just call this, this is the effective replication rate. For my stem cell. And there's some ideal rate here. And I have some variation, whatever that is. With time, this mean will drift up to higher replication rates, and this will spread. There is some range over which this structure is regulated. When I have cells here, this produces a deregulated structure. And then other things happen. So, the result of that is that you can have a cancer, because eventually this process leads to cancers, which has no mutation at all. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have heritable changes of behavior. You don't need a single change in the DNA to have it happen. Now, if you know enough about the mechanisms of phenotypic variation, you may be able to come back and say, well, without a specific DNA insult, it will take 10 million years to cross that line. But this is a first passage time problem. And you don't need a genetic change to have it happen. Now, that's a mathematician statement, not a biologist or a chemist statement, or, or a, a medical doctor. In this case, we know the mechanism. Right? So it's APC and regulation of the transition from stem cells to, to uh, differentiated cells. Well, that's one of the things that could happen. But the point here is that this is a more generic statement. Structures typically are organized this way. Anytime you have rapidly replicating stem cells, there will be a drift in a selection of this kind if there is a limited range over which the tissue self-regulates. If you wait long enough, the tissue will disorganize. So in that sense, every stem cell is a cancer cell if it reproduces. Maybe I'm not parsing the statement correctly. But it can develop 
but uh, do they well, work? Well, I mean, is this the statement that there are actually uh, cancers that uh, do not have uh, It's a mathematical statement. It is, in fact, a proof that you don't need a mutation. Now, an existence theorem is very different from a constructive proof that says that the conditions under which you don't need a mutation. If this first passage time in the absence of a mutation is comparable to your lifetime, then it's meaningful. If it isn't, it's not. Nevertheless, it does give you a warning that if you are looking specifically at mutations, you might, in fact, miss what is happening. And I'm not making any statements at all about rates. Yeah. I'm simply giving you an illustration of a situation in which you will get this kind of Yeah, I would still imagine that you focus on mutations and you may miss, but the, you know, the probability of missing is very small. So I mean, it doesn't strike me as a. a any, but, but Boris. But, but I certainly, certainly but, agree with you that the, the developmental process that controls it is uh, open to all sorts of uh, phenotypic variation and involves uh, subtleties of regulation that can uh, uh, go wrong. But uh, semantic mutation still remains uh, uh, euthenic. Everything that we know about the points in that direction, the uh, most susceptible or you know, most likely uh, route uh, Maybe. I mean, if you if you include it with a somatic mutation, not only mutation of the gene itself, but of its regulatory regions, of any small interfering RNAs that also are related to it, and so on, then probably if you include all of those mechanisms, you're right. But when you do a SNP analysis, you're not looking for that. You're looking for a change in the gene, usually. Maybe up for upstream regulators. The point is that and also, if there's a pathway, suppose this, not this, this property, whatever it is, is cell adhesion. Well, if I knock out N-cadherin, clearly I'll change the cell adhesion. But there are hundreds of genes that could affect the adhesion of that cell to its neighbors. And any one of those changes would do the same thing. And so analyzing it at that level there is the problem here is that it's very difficult to come up with an intermediate level of detail. What you care about is the phenotypic behavior. Knowing every possible mutation that could lead to a change in that phenotypic behavior and quantifying them is very hard. And I would also say that for mathematicians and, and physicists, it, it's not something that we have much to say to. It's basically a, a bookkeeping exercise. And it could be very useful, provided that you haven't missed something crucial like interfering RNAs, which have a tremendous regulatory role, which nobody knew about. So all I'm pointing out is that, in fact, if you wait long enough, every stem cell in your body will become a cancer cell. Long enough might be the age of the universe. Okay, now. I think we'll stop in the in the afternoon. Since it's if I have the if I have the attention of a few of you, I would like to actually show some examples of this stuff, rather than just talk about generic ideas.
Uh, and they're not going to be wonderful examples, but they'll make a lot of these things clear. That'll be here. Uh, I think it's all I'm just, I'm just checking, yeah. So this afternoon, what's today? Friday? Monday. Okay. Tuesday. 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 <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Friday. <laughs> July. We have the auditorium at 1.30 today, okay. so we could use that for a continued discussion and, and if I, people are interested. I want to apologize. I'm not trying to short-circuit any of these comments or questions. I just want to make sure that, that a couple of the basic ideas get covered. And I'd, I'd like to, I'm happy to have an infinite amount of argument thereafter. And I'm happy to talk about it during the talk, but I, I just want to make sure that there are a couple more key ideas I want to get across. And, and as I said, this is really, these are discussion points. These are not conclusions. Mm -hmm. So at 1.30, we, we uh, get the rest of the paradoxes and we see some new things. Is that right. Right? Yeah. And the location is auditorium. auditorium.